Hey, Rachel, I was reading your Gabriel Summers post on the blog. Aw, thanks, Miles. I'm really proud of that. Yeah, but I noticed you kind of skirted over Rachel Summers. What's up with that? Well, she's a continuity black hole. I can't be that bad. She's basically just Scott and Jean's kid from an alternate timeline, right? Miles, I want you to take a moment and think about what you just said. Yeah, okay. Okay, so, Rachel Summers, or Rachel Gray, depending on which of her parents she's pissed at, is Scott and Jean's kid from the Days of Future Past timeline. That's Earth-8-11. She got flung back in time to the 616, that's the main Marvel Universe, via Kate Pride, future Shadowcat. And then she joined Excalibur, right? Well, not yet. She ran around with the X-Men for a little while, picked up the Phoenix Force, and then ended up stuck in the Mojoverse until Shadowcat and Nightcrawler helped her get out in a dream sequence. And then she joined Excalibur. Yeah, but she didn't stick around. She dove into the time stream to save Captain Britain and ended up in Earth-4935, a far future reality where Apocalypse was in control. Rachel started a Phoenix cult called Clan Ascani, and when she was really old, she popped back to the 616 to take Baby Cable, who's basically her alternate universe little brother, back to the future to save his life. O- okay, well, so then who's the Rachel Summers running around with the X-Men now? She can't be older than, like, her mid-twenties, right? Well, when Cable defeated Apocalypse in 616, it splintered the timeline again. Rachel ended up back in the time stream, and Cable dove in to rescue her. Okay, say what you will about these time-hopping Summers kids, they generally do have each other's backs. They really do, but because of where the timeline fractured this time, very little relative time has passed, at least for the version of Rachel that Cable pulls out of the time stream. And then they live happily ever after. No, then she gets enslaved by a telepath and turns into a dinosaur. What?! Rachel Edidon. I'm Miles Stokes. And we are here to explain the X-Men. Because it's about time someone did. Welcome to the sixth episode of Rachel and Miles Explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, outs, and retcons of our favorite superhero soap opera. So this week, Days of Future Past, the new X-Men movie, opens in theaters everywhere. That Days of Future Past film is based on a classic 1981 story of the same title, which marked the X-Book's first foray into time travel, territory they would revisit a lot. The movie looks like it's going to do the same for the X-Men cinematic universe, bridging the first X-Men cinematic continuity, X-Men 1 through 3, and the Wolverine movies, with a rebooted first class, and so setting the stage for presumably a new timeline. And an entire new spectrum of crunchy time travel paradoxes. So this week, we're going to look at the comics that inspired Days of Future Past, their relation to the Marvel multiverse, and how uh, that affects the future of the X-Men on screen. So, X-Men Days of Future Past. Now, this was in X-Men number 141 and 142. Small trivia note, the title officially changed from X-Men to Uncanny X-Men between these two issues. At this point, the X-Men were coming out of some really crazy stuff. We are skipping forward a bit here for the benefit of the movie that's coming out, but basically, the, the Phoenix and Dark Phoenix saga had just happened. So, Jean Grey had been possessed by a cosmic force and had killed herself, and there was lots of fighting in space, and Cyclops got kind of depressed, understandably, and left the team. So, for all practical purposes, our lineup going in to Days of Future Past is Storm, who's leading the team at this point. And she's very new to leading the team. She's still very unsure of herself, and some of the members still don't quite trust her leadership. That's going to change eventually, because Storm is a total badass. But for now, she's still pretty tentative. We've also got Colossus and Nightcrawler, Wolverine. And we have Kitty Pride, who has just joined the team relatively recently, and is uh, just moving toward becoming a full-fledged member of the X-Men at this point. She'll eventually be known best by the codename Shadowcat, but right now she's going by Sprite. And she's only been around for a couple issues, which is going to be really important to this storyline. Days of Future Past opens in the far, far future. And the cool thing about this is we don't have any indications of, you know, it is the year 20XDX, like Mega Man or whatever. It's just all of a sudden there's this uh, middle-aged woman who we quickly find out is Kate Pride going through this sort of shattered landscape and talking about how terrible everything is and how dire her mission is. And she references, like, camps where mutants are put in that are ruled over by sentinels. The, the reader is just sort of like, wait, what's going on here? This, this isn't where I left my X-Men. They just, like, fought the blob and everything was fine. Where did this come from? We'll find out later that the year she's in is, in fact, the far future dystopic era 
era of 2013. Oh, man. I am terrified of when 2013 finally gets here. We're going to be screwed. It's going to be bad news, man. So we see a little bit of this timeline, and it quickly becomes clear that she's like on this special mission to meet up with Wolverine, who's in the Canadian resistance, and she runs into some punks who are, oh, man. I don't like them quite as much as I like the angry Silver Age mob, but punks with mohawks and tattoos and chains who just like beat people up for seemingly no reason are kind of my second favorite. They're definitely punks from the very specific 80s cyber dystopia that brought us things like the Warriors and the FP. Oh man, the FP. Brief side note, if you haven't seen that movie, it will change your life, but you might want to be drunk at the time. You definitely, definitely don't want to watch that movie sober. So we see that in this future, um, basically everything's gone to hell. So the Sentinels have pretty much taken over the world. And all the mutants are in concentration camps that they've been able to find. And we uh, we see as Kate enters the uh, the concentration camp. That not only mutants have been victimized in this, that a whole bunch of people are dead because she walks by a graveyard and... Basically the ones there, it's a lot of the X-Men. It's also a lot of the Fantastic Four. It's all of the Fantastic Four. The implication here is that Sentinels have basically sort of stepped up their game and started protecting humanity from pretty much everything that's not fully human, anything that's more powerful than a human being uh, that's not a sentinel. Oh, Peter Parker's in there too. You can just see the corner of it. Poor Pete. He just can't catch a break, can he? Here's who we know for sure is dead at this point. Johnny Storm, Ben Grimm, Susan Richards, Charles Xavier, Lorna Dane, Reed Richards, Scott Summers, Bobby Drake, Warren Worthington, Kurt Wagner, Peter Parker, and Hank McCoy. It's interesting that they use nicknames on the gravestones. I, I don't know. I mean, like Stink, Stinky Pete Johnson or Fred Sleazebag Richardson. Like, I, I think graveyards would be way better if we adopted this technique. I think we should we should swear right now that if either of us dies, we're going to come up with the worst nicknames possible. Bam. Uh, <sighs> listeners, if you have any suggestions, we're, we're certainly open to them. We're into this. We also see that, like, Magneto's in a wheelchair and he's sort of allied with the X-Men out of necessity. Like, there are all these little things. It's actually very good at show, don't tell in terms of showing us just why this future has utterly gone to hell. And thus, why, as we find out, the plan of these of these rebels, the remaining X-Men and also Franklin Richards, the now adult son of um, Mr. Fantastic and the Invisible Woman. Franklin Richards is one of two new characters who we meet in this story. The other one is his girlfriend, Rachel, who at this point doesn't have a last name, but who much, much later will be revealed to have been Rachel Summers, the alternate universe kid of Scott Summers and Jean Grey. Exactly. For right now, she's all, all we know about her is that she uh, has the ability to project uh, the consciousness of someone back in time. And so we find out as the future X-Men come up with this daring plan to sneak out of the concentration camp and past a bunch of sentinels and many of them laying down their lives in the process, in fact, most of them, that uh, the plan is to send Kate Pride back through the timeline to her past self, Kitty Pride, who, you know, like at this point is a young teenager who has just joined up with the X-Men. And is just about to take her first run through the danger room. This part is actually one of my favorite early Claremont bits. Um, although I guess we're about 40 issues in, so it's not that early Claremont. But well, um, Claremont wrote the X-Men for a really long time. If you can divide if you could divide it into early, middle, late, we're still well and early. Yeah. So apparently, like the Professor Xavier has um set up this really complex routine in the danger room as Kitty's first run through. He doesn't want to hurt her but he does want to challenge her and so like there's a lot of you know big things that fall on her that are padded and big bean bags that are being shot at her except the thing is if you're familiar with kitty pride you know that her power is phasing she can make herself intangible she completely panics closes her eyes and just walks straight through the obstacle course and in fact out the other side of the danger room and the x-men just like bust up laughing at this point because yeah xavier all the work he did nope and she's a kid. She's a lot younger than the rest of the X-Men. The rest of them in their, are in their late teens or 20s or, or older. And she's, I think, 13 at this point. Right. She's supposed to be really, really young. Then she gets out 
and she basically just falls over all of a sudden. And the X-Men are like, hey, what's what's going on? Let's bring her to the infirmary. And when she wakes up, she's a little different. First of all, she's up till this point completely freaked out by Nightcrawler. They're going to become friends later, but she's still really scared of him at the beginning of this, this issue. The first thing she does when she wakes up is give him a big hug. And he's like, whoa, wait, what's up? I mean, cool, but what? Well, it turns out Kitty's not exactly Kitty. Because she was the youngest of the X-Men at this point, and she didn't have psychic defenses yet, Kate Pride was the one of the X-Men who was chosen to go back in time and basically possess her former self. Right, because what we learn here, as Kitty sort of uh, throws out some exposition at the X-Men, or as Kate does, I should say, is that this dark timeline of Days of Future Past, which, uh, side note, is actually named after a Moody Blues album, apparently this big precipitating event that uh, led to the crackdown on mutants and thus the Sentinel takeover of the world uh, after that was the assassination of a presidential candidate named Robert Kelly. Robert Kelly is, I believe at this point, a senator. And he is going to be assassinated, it turns out, by the revamped Brotherhood of Evil Mutants. This is the same group that we met in the Silver Age, at least politically, but the lineup's a little different. So at this point, uh, Mystique is our leader. Now, we've mentioned her in the past, and if you've seen the movies, which we'll be talking about later this episode, she majorly factors in. Now, comics Mystique is different. She's a blue... She wears clothes. Yes, she does wear clothes, and her clothes are like, it's sort of this slinky white spy dress with badass boots and a belt full of tiny skulls. Did she just kill a lot of tiny humans, or did she get those out of like one of those little vending machines where there's the plastic bubble with the toy in it? I'm, I'm going to go with the Banff skulls. I, I think that actually uh, totally works. Comics Mystique is also hella queer, which I am profoundly in favor of. And so speaking of, let's talk about the second member of the Brotherhood, Destiny. Destiny is, again, another another Claremont reference. Her actual name is Irene Adler, with you, which if you're familiar with Sherlock Holmes should sound familiar. She is precognitive. She can see the future. She's also blind. She's also really badass, and she has a super creepy costume that I am pretty into. I really like her costume. Um, Another brief side note is that part of her costume is this sort of gold face mask that, for extremely complicated reasons, about ten years later, Dazzler is going to have stuck to her face with a knife for, like, six issues straight. X-Men! X-Men. Okay, and then we have a couple... uh, The Blob we've mentioned before. There's really not a lot to say about the Blob. He's big. He's not very smart. He loves punching people and not falling over when they punch him. Pyro, this is a dude that you'll know from the movies. The comics version is a little different. He's British. He has big flamethrowers, and he's pretty silly. So we also have Avalanche. Uh, he makes earthquakes. That's pretty much Avalanche for you He's right got there. a really bad hat. Randomly enough, he's kind of a major character in the X-Men Evolution cartoon. I don't know why they picked him, but he's kind of cool in it. Anyway, at this point in history, Senator Kelly is planning to introduce some anti-mutant legislation. I believe the Mutant Registration Act, specifically. Right, um, and that's going to come back again and again and again. Um, it's implied that it's sort of, he's using it to kind of uh, stir up some, some enthusiasm among his voter base, so they elect him president. But regardless of the reason... In both the comics and movie continuity, the Mutant Registration Act is generally treated and introduced as the first step of a slippery slope to genocide. Yeah, and I mean, you know, that's usually mentioned by somebody who's there, be it Magneto or the Brotherhood or whatever. Yeah, Magneto's usually got the best standing to bring it up, but it's it's something that at this point is generally accepted as, the, you know, this is the beginning of the end. Yeah, Magneto sadly is not around, which always makes me sad at this point. But He'll anyway, be back. Um, so He's the, around in the future. Uh, that's true, that's true. Uh, the Brotherhood, their plan is to assassinate Senator Kelly to basically show that mutants are not to be trifled with. Their plan doesn't really seem much more elaborate than that, but I mean, I guess that would get the goal across. Well, unfortunately, what we know from, you know, Kate Pride coming back is that the result of convincing people that mutants are not to be trifled with also convinces them that mutants are to be controlled and, if possible, eradicated. 
Right. So Kate's basic goal in coming back is to prevent the assassination, figuring if that happens, then, hey, the uh, the world that I am coming back from, you know, this dark future that uh, spins out of this event, maybe it'll be rewritten and the future will suck a lot less. Not so much. First of all, preventing Kelly's assassination doesn't actually stop the anti-mutant agenda. What it does is convince Kelly that mutants are a threat worth taking really seriously. Second, it doesn't fix the timeline. Now, this is something, oh boy, this is where it gets complicated. This right here is one of the reasons that we need to explain the X-Men here. And what this takes us to is the Marvel multiverse. What you need to know about Marvel is that for the most part, they don't overwrite continuity. When something is retconned out of existence, when someone says, what if, when there's an issue with what if in the actual title, when people travel briefly to an alternate universe, instead of actually overwriting, that just splinters into a separate universe of the Marvel multiverse. At this point, there are literally thousands. And based on the numbering system, possibly even hundreds of thousands. Let's go through a few examples of how different events can change into different timelines. Well, there's Days of Future Past, which we've already touched on. That's Earth 811. Another major dark future timeline is Earth 2095. Earth 2095 is the Age of Apocalypse, and the trigger event for that split was the murder of Professor X by his future son before he could found the X-Men. In that universe, Magneto picked up the torch and started the X-Men, but he did it too late to stop Apocalypse from taking over the world. So then we also have Earth 1191, which is called the Forever Yesterday universe. There's a character named Bishop, and that's where he comes from. Basically, it's a universe that's kind of like Days of Future Past, but had this thing called the Summer's Rebellion, which broke everyone out of the mutant concentration camps. And there was, I believe there was a different instigating event in, in Forever Yesterday, too, that it wasn't the assassination of Senator Kelly, but it was, it was the destruction of a major urban area. Uh, yeah, it was this thing called the Six Second War, which was actually triggered by Mastermind and killed thousands of people within, as you might imagine, six seconds. That actually took place in the Days of Future Past universe as well, but in that it took place after the Mutant Registration Act and the assassination of Kelly, and so had slightly different consequences. See, this is where things get kind of confusing, because you'll run into a lot of alternate timelines that are similar, but they're not identical. And that's the case with Days of Future Past and with Forever Yesterday. But anyway, in this one, Bishop grew up in the concentration camps and ended up, after they were liberated, in the XSE. That is the Xavier Security Enforcers? Yeah, but it started out as the Xavier School Enforcers, which just makes me think of Bishop as like sort of a futuristic hall monitor with a giant gun. Yeah, that actually sounds about right for Forever Yesterday. And for Bishop, for that matter. It really does. Bishop is all about big, ridiculous guns. Uh, You've also got universes that split doubly. So Earth 311 starts when Captain America of Earth 460 gets sent back to the year 1602 of Earth 616, which at that point splinters into its own continuity. And that's where the 1602 comics take place. X-Men, everybody. That's not just X-Men. That's the whole Marvel universe. Comics, everybody. And then we also have Earths like Earth... 200,500, in which the Avengers all have beards. (laughs) I want to live there. That is the best one. Scarlet Witch has a really nice beard. Um, This is actually a one-page story in a comic, and Thor's in the corner looking really sad and saying, but I already had a beard. Which he did. It's it's not even one page. It's just one panel in, in I think, Marvel, huh, number one. Something like that. Now, maybe this is just because uh, the writers wanted to go back to Days of Future Past because the fans loved it as a concept, but... After uh, Senator Kelly's assassination is prevented, the future is just as it was. One thing we'll find is that the Days of Future Past future, like we alluded to before, it doesn't actually change when Senator Kelly's assassination is prevented. It just picks up right where it left off. Rachel Summers uh, is later sent back in time for reasons we won't go into right now. Her take on it is that she was sent to the wrong past. Now, that's not exactly true. Uh, And that's Rachel, not Kitty. Kitty was sent to the right past. It's just that instead of preventing the future, she splintered the timeline. Rachel then was sent back to the past of 
the splinter timeline that Kitty created, which is the, now the main 616 timeline. Yeah, and see, you know that when the comic characters can't understand continuity, that if you can't understand it, you're probably still doing fine. There is literally a point in one of the stories that revisits this someone asks what's going on and someone else is literally like, you know what, let's just not worry about that and deal with it. It, We're we're never going to be able to understand this. Mm -hmm. If you have a cool plot line, as a writer, you're going to want to come back to it because the fans love it. That's, I think, part of why nobody really stays dead in comics. Why everyone, you know, will die for a while and then come back is because the fans have missed them. With Days of Future Past, if they had just let the timeline be resolved, we would never see more of this really cool, dark, appealing future that seemed to resonate with so many people. What is cool is that in one of the points that re- where it's revisited, the dark future is actually resolved. But what it takes is a group of present heroes traveling into the future and figuring out how to fix it when it's already broken. It can't be prevented but it can ultimately be repaired. This happens later on in Excalibur, which is all about both time travel and the multiverse. We're going to get to that later. Excalibur is glorious. Excalibur is one of our favorite comics, and Excalibur is, is as Miles said, all about diving into the craziness of the multiverse. For now, though, let's go back to what's going on currently and specifically how the Days of Future Past comics might relate to the movies. Let's start out by just talking about the cinematic X-Men universe uh, so far. So the first X-Men movie, just X-Men, came out in 2000. This was the first live-action X-Men feature film. There'd been a few cartoons before and an abortive attempt at a Generation X live-action series, but this was the first time the X-Men had made it onto the big screen. This is my favorite of the X-Men movies. It's very much an action movie. It's Wolverine-centric, which I have mixed feelings about, but bear in mind that at this point, none of us had actually gotten tired of Hugh Jackman yet. Like, he was, he was not ubiquitous as Wolverine, and it was really, really cool. It wasn't a super X-Men-y story. It was, it was a kind of generic superhero action story, but it nailed the characterization, and it nailed the character dynamics in a way that I don't think any of the following films have. It was cast incredibly well. Well, mostly. Well, okay, yeah, with one major exception, it was cast incredibly well. Um, I mean, I, think, I remember in high school and middle school having conversations about, well, obviously Patrick Stewart would have to play Professor X if they'd ever, ever did X-Men, and, and he did. You know, Ian McKellen as Magneto, Hugh Jackman, who I certainly hadn't heard of as Wolverine. And... Yeah, he was, I, I remember seeing the first pictures of him and just being floored. Uh, James Marsden as Cyclops, who was one of the most criminally underused actors in that continuity. Every time a new movie comes out, he does a sort of sad interview being like, I'd, I'd really love to play Cyclops again if you guys let me. And He's so good, too. A few years later, in 2003, we had uh, X-Men 2, also known as X2, X-Men United, because, well, why not? This was actually the first of the X-Men movies that was directly based on a specific storyline. In this case, it was based on a storyline called God Loves, Man Kills by Chris Claremont. God Loves, Man Kills was first released as a Marvel graphic novel in the early 80s. Early 80s? Early 80s, yeah. The original version of it dealt with fundamentalist religion as um, stirring anti-mutant hysteria. The movie version's a little different. Right, so uh, instead of having William Stryker as this televangelist, it has him as a guy who's effectively working for Homeland Security. You know, he's dealing with the pending mutant threat, we find out because his son's a mutant and, you know, he's all messed up about that. Um, X2 also focused a lot on Wolverine's past as part of the Weapon X project, which was sort of merged into what Stryker was working on. It's a mixed movie. I mean, the plot uh, focuses so heavily on Wolverine, I think, to the detriment of the film, but it also is just really digging into sort of the crunchy weirdness of the X-Men universe, and it's a whole lot of fun. You get to see the X-Men and the Brotherhood team up. You get to see, you know, Pyro switch sides and join the Brotherhood. It's uh, it's good stuff overall. You know, you say it digs into the crunchy weirdness of the X-Men universe, but I actually kind of d- disagree with that. I feel like it's a Weapon X story guest starring the X-Men, and that that's really a weak point on it, that it's 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 not an X-Men movie. It's an, it's a, it's a Wolverine and the X-Men in parentheses movie. So what comes next? The next movie is X-Men The Last Stand. Oh, man. Um, X-Men The Last Stand is 
Oh God, X-Men The Last Stand is a mess. There are a few things that it really nails that I want to touch on though. One of them is action. It's got great fight scenes and it's the first movie that really gets how the X-Men fight. We've talked about the teamwork thing and the badass team-up moves and just the you know, the camaraderie in battle that's really a, a running theme in X-Men. And X3 is the first movie that actually seems to get that. They do that really, really well. Where it falls short is basically everything else. X-Men 2 is based on God Loves Man Kills. What's X-Men 3 based on? X-Men 3 is based on two different story arcs. One is Gifted, which is the first arc of Joss Whedon's run, which centers around the development of a quote-unquote cure for mutants. The other is the classic Dark Phoenix saga, except instead of making Jean possessed by a cosmic force, they just give her a scary second personality that Professor X has previously suppressed. The second underlying theme of X-3 is Bitches Be Crazy, Man. I kind of want to see that on the movie poster just as a tagline. I think it would be much more accurate advertising. X3, we didn't think this one out at all. It's seriously trying to be about three or four different movies. And of those, all of them except like about a third of one are really, really bad. I find that I dislike it for different reasons now than I did when it came out. I do still resent that it kills my favorite character off screen in the first 10 minutes. And I think that's the thing with, with X-Men 3 is that it kind of almost kills the franchise. It it kills a lot of the characters. It sort of uses up some of the most important X-Men stories in an ineffective way. And at the end of it, we basically have a few students left at the Xavier School, most of the main characters gone, and really not not many places to go story-wise. The only grown-up who's still around of the original group at the end of X-3 is Storm. And that's a really big problem. Storm is an awesome character in the comics. In the movies, um, she is poorly written, she is underpowered, and she is played by Halle Berry, who is phoning in her performance on a level that I'm not sure even involves dialing. So X-Men 3 happened, and at that point, when I saw that, I was pretty much ready to say, you know what? Done. This film franchise is done. But they didn't uh, want to be done. Instead, they had a few more movies coming up. We'll skip ahead to the next X-Men X-Men movie, which is X-Men First Class. That uh, came out back in 2011, not too long ago. And that, more than anything else, is the predecessor to the new movie Days of Future Past. So First Class takes place pretty much entirely in the 60s. X-Men First Class is, above all, about the star-crossed bromance of Charles Xavier and Eric Lencher, who will later turn into Magneto. That is what the movie is. If you are going in for anything else, you will be disappointed. Yeah, it, do- it does that relationship really well. And when you get down to it, um, Xavier and Magneto and their ideological conflict and personal connection, like that's such a central part of what works in X-Men. And I think for me, that's why, as flawed as X-Men First Class is, I really, really like the movie. It's also really fun seeing Xavier as like an early 20s douchebag just trying to pick up chicks in bars, slightly using his telepathy and babbling about genetics. It's a fun movie. There are a lot of things it does right. There are also a lot of things it does wrong. Um, And there are a lot of kind of baffling choices it makes. X-Men First Class features a really weird lineup of X-Men and a really weird Brotherhood of Mutants lineup. On the X-Men side, you see Xavier and Magneto recruiting Banshee, Angel, not Warren Worthington, but a female character that comes later. She's from Morrison's run, but this is like a sexified version of her. Yeah. um, Darwin, Havoc, uh, Beast, and um, I think that's it. Is that it? Uh, Well, there's Mystique. Mystique is with them at the beginning, too. Oh, right. Yeah. She's like the best friend of Charles Xavier. Yeah. In this continuity, Mystique and Charles Xavier grew up together, which is an interesting twist. Yeah. And you have this really strange brotherhood of like Kevin Bacon as Sebastian Shaw, who in the comic is the leader of the Hellfire Club. We'll be getting into that much later. Yeah. And Isaiah who's Nightcrawler's Satan dad, which the less said the better for now. I think we touched on that last episode. Oh, freaking Azazel. Uh, <laughs> He's the worst. And um, I think Riptide, who basically just has no lines and makes makes whirlwinds. So, He's nice hair. 
at this point, like this is where X Men continuity in the movies totally, totally deviates from the uh, the comic book. This lineup just doesn't make any sense. Havoc should be uh, not even born at this point. Well, depending on how you count time, um, it basically is saying, "Hey, the movie continuity it's doing its own thing, and you guys need to accept that or stop watching." And First Class also very directly conflicts with a lot of con- continuity that's presented in X Men One through Three. The easiest way to trace that is when Xavier is walking in flashbacks in the first three movies. Um, Because that, again, that directly conflicts with a lot of first class. But there are other smaller points, too. In addition to those four X-Men movies, there are two Wolverine movies that are technically part of the same continuity. The first one came out in 2009. It's X-Men Origins Wolverine. And it is notable as the movie made by people who are convinced that Wolverines are wolves. Wolverines aren't wolves? Wolverines aren't wolves. Wolverines are large weasels. And (laughs) there's a really... (laughs) I'm sorry. So... I love, I love Wolverine Origins so much. It is an unapologetically terrible film. It is batshit insane. And it is just unapologetically dumb. Literally, like within a five minute period, Wolverine either jumps or walks dramatically out of four explosions. You can make a drinking game that just barely keeps you out of the hospital based on the number of times he falls to his knees and yells at the sky. The first time this happens, he's eight years old. And there's a major plot point. His, his choice of the codename Wolverine is based on his girlfriend telling him a made up and like made up badly to the point where you can you can Google it and figure out exactly why it's a problem. Um, legend of her generic First Nations people involving Wolverines howling at the moon. Oh, boy. But, you know, if you're just looking for a dumb action movie, then this is a good one. Now, it's it's really dumb. Um, if you are someone who gets really upset at seeing your favorite characters misrepresented or seeing continuity broken, it's not a movie for you. If you are someone who enjoys really glorious com- committed train wrecks, which I do, you will love this film. It is not good, but it is really damn entertaining. All of that being said, it's got a pretty decent gambit, I have to say. It does. Oh, my God. It has a gambit who manages to be fun and not creepy. It actually does cameos really well in general. And because of where and when it's set, it's got a lot of cameos. You see a lot of Weapon X and you see a lot of young mutant kids who are being um, held hostage by the Weapon X program. This movie is basically about Wolverine's backstory in Weapon X. It leaves him off with his memory wiped ready to jump into X-Men 1 about five years later. So yeah, if you want a dumb action movie, watch X-Men Origins Wolverine. If you want a surprisingly decent action movie, then uh, the most recent one from 2013 is The Wolverine. What I really dig about The Wolverine is, yeah, it's an X-Men movie, but for the most part, it's just about Wolverine off in Japan doing you know this very self-contained story. And that's based pretty directly on an arc of the comics, isn't it? Uh, yeah, that's an arc of the comics uh, by Chris Claremont, uh, writing by Chris Claremont and art by Frank Miller. This is really good. It's a four-issue miniseries. I highly recommend checking it out. It's been collected into trade a number of times. And I believe, I don't know if it's still running today, but at least as of yesterday, Comixology was having a massive sale on early Claremont X-Men. I don't know if Wolverine's included in that, but if you're looking to catch up on this era, that might be a good place to look this weekend. Yeah, totally. But anyway, the Wolverine, I mean, you know, it's got a lot of good character work. We see sort of the savagery and the attempt at, the attempts at honor and civility that really define the character in a way we don't in most of the other movies, especially not in X-Men's origin, X-Men Origins Wolverine. Again, it's not a perfect movie. There's a lot of silliness. There are a lot of cultural issues that you can get into in depth. But it seems to kind of, it, it seems to be deliberately constructed in a way that Origins really isn't. Yeah. Now, this movie, because it's separate, if you're trying to, uh, you know, get it on X-Men movie continuity, you don't necessarily need to, aside from a post credit scene with Xavier and Magneto that you can easily find on YouTube. Um, but if you're just looking for a fun movie, a way to spend an evening, I recommend it. 
So you mentioned if you're trying to get into continuity, what would you say that people should watch or should have seen going into X-Men Days of Future Past? Do they need to do they need to do what we did and basically spend a week marathoning all of these movies? Oh man, I will say if you did, you're going to do some damage to your liver. We can recommend a brand of tequila for origins. <laughs> okay, so First Class, I say yes, definitely see that. That's basically the start of a new X-Men movie trilogy. First Class, then Days of Future Past, then the already announced X-Men Apocalypse, which is coming out in like, I don't know, 2017 or something. The glamest continuity. One can only hope. First Class uh, takes place in the 60s. Um, the present day scenes in Days of Future Past, or rather I should say the not future scenes, take place in the 70s. So you would definitely want to see that, and I hate to say this, but X-Men 3, The Last Stand, that basically does set up the dark future that we see in Days of Future Past with Sentinels, you know, uh, basically ruling the world. One advantage of the narrative incoherence of The Last Stand is that it doesn't really help you very much to have seen the first two movies. All you really need to know is that Jean Grey is dead, Wolverine had a crush on her. That is literally it. Right. So in this, we see, you know, some big crazy battles and mutants just doing terrible things and humanity sort of freaking out about it. And you can easily see how this would lead into a world where humanity does take the step of creating the Sentinels. Then what can we expect in Days of Future Past? I was sort of hoping that I'd have seen the movie by this point, but it turns out that the only local press screening is next Tuesday. So this is all going to be speculative. Right. We've seen some trailers. We've checked out some websites. And that's about it. So... It looks like the dark future does come, like I said, directly out of X-Men 3. There are sentinels everywhere. The mutants that, you know, survived X-Men 3, uh, a lot of them have become... Both um, of them? Yeah, basically. A lot of them are now the central X-Men. So, like, we see Iceman, Bobby Drake, and uh, Shadowcat, Kitty Pride. They're now full-fledged members of the team. Iceman, I'd like to, like to point out, also has an awesome beard, and I am fully in support of that. Oh, my God. He's, he's a step closer to becoming an ice wizard. Oh, man. Rachel, They're never going to go there in the movies, but God, I hope. We were talking about we tombstones. If I die before you, can you write down my tombstone? Miles Stokes, he was an ice wizard. And just leave it at that. Can it be Miles Stokes definitely an ice wizard? I feel like there's sort of more of a, that, that's got a little bit more spark. More oomph to it? Okay, yeah. that's fair. Yeah. Um, but yeah, and then- uh, we'll I want also, probably a Summers brother on mine. <laughs> we'll also see as, as Wolverine uh, goes back in time to the 70s. Oh, and actually that's something we should talk about. So in the comic, it's Kate Pride that her con- who has her consciousness sent back in time to her younger self in the movies- it's Wolverine, because the movies are basically Wolverine and some X-Men. And this is no exception, which means that, unfortunately, we get Days of Future Past, which is a movie about three old white men three times. Once again. Um, that being said, Wolverine has been a, a very well-developed character in the movies, so I think it's going to work. It's just a little sad that we don't get to see A, a female character, and B, specifically Kitty Pride. You know, this kind of goes back to what we were talking about last week about Wolverine in the comics, and that, you know, he's a good character. Hugh Jackman is a terrific actor. He plays Wolverine really well, but at this point, I've grown to resent him because I feel like he ends up, he's ended up the center of the franchise largely out of default and habit. And that's actively preventing them from going in more interesting directions or exploring a wider range of characters, which I think is one of the strengths of X-Men or should be. But well, speaking of exploring a wider range of characters, though, um, that's something that Days of Future Past looks like it's going to do. Um, specifically, what's kind of interesting is we're going to see at least one character from each of at least two other alternate futures. What this leans toward, or what, what we're thinking, isn't that this means a massive multiverse. It's more that they're going to do what the cartoons have done over the years, which is to merge some of the dark futures, specifically... Uh, so we have Forever Yesterday, where Bishop comes from. Now, Bishop is a character in the in the new movie, and as near as I can tell, he helps sort of lead the mutant resistance. He also looks awesome. 
Yes, and I, I'm pleased to see that he still has a stupid giant laser gun. The future is should always be all about f- stupid giant laser guns. Yeah, Bishop is is in some ways the signature character of the era when everyone had enormous guns and enormous shoulders. And we also have Blink, uh, or specifically the version of the character from the Age of Apocalypse universe. Blink has existed in multiple timelines. The version from 616 died I think in the the second issue she was in, maybe. She was technically a Generation X character, I think, and basically sacrificed her life to save part of the rest of the group who then went on to star in their own ongoing series. Age of Apocalypse Blink appeared briefly in the Age of Apocalypse books, but then she gained much, much greater popularity as a member of the Reality Hopping Exiles team in that title. So, yeah, we're going to see some new characters in the future version, the future timeline, Days of Future, Days of future Past, um, presumably some new characters in the past. But I think more importantly is sort of, at this point, I think the stated intention of the movie from the people who worked on it, right? Right. Now, in fan fiction, there's actually a great word for this that I love, which is fix it, fix it fic, which is where you take something that has sort of screwed up continuity in permanent ways and, and you retcon it out. You, you, find, you find an in-universe, in-continuity way to fix it. And that is the stated intention of X-Men Days of Future Past. It returns Brian Singer, who directed the first two movies to the franchise. And it also looks like it's going to undo, uh, at at the very least, a lot of what happened in X-Men 3, but potentially what happened in the first three X-Men movies, period. It looks like this is going to lead to what amounts to a reboot in X-Men Apocalypse and whatever comes after that. There's been a huge amount of viral marketing around this movie, and I think it's worth touching on that because... A lot of it specifically relates to the idea of branching and fractured timelines. Actually, it kind of reminded me of uh, Watchmen, the, not specifically the movie, the comic as well. And then fuck that movie. <laughs> Where, um, you know, we see like what Dr. Manhattan, what effect he had on history. In the case of the timeline we see in the viral marketing here, we see that mutants have altered a lot of aspects of history. We're not going to go through that in a lot of detail. There's a website that we'll link to that is a lot of fun. It's interesting. It's a lot of material, so whether or not you want to click through all of it before the movie comes out, it's up to you. For now, though, we're going to dive into listener questions. Okay, so what's our first question, Rachel? Well, uh, Captain Mark on Twitter asks, It's been 30 years since Days of Future Past. Why does this storyline keep getting mined? That's a good question. I mean, we've one of the things we've touched on in the podcast is what sticks and what doesn't, and Days of Future Past sure as hell sticks. I think uh, part of it is that time travel stories allow you to sort of see the effects of what anti-mutant hatred have on the world. And you can't just say, oh, things might get really bad. You can show, holy crap, things are getting really bad. Like, a sentinel just zapped Wolverine until he was a skeleton. There are gravestones of all yeah, these that characters happens. I know and love. It's fairly shocking. It's a, it's a great panel, yeah. And it's always fun seeing a timeline where you don't know what's going to happen. The fact that, you know, Days of Future Past does open with all these terrible things happening uh, makes it clear that anything could happen. Anyone could die. Um, any crazy plot development could occur. Um, I think, and that also works in time travel, the idea of traveling back in time to fix the future, the idea of alternate timelines based on history being altered, it gives everything very high stakes. You're not only modifying things in the present, but you're also changing what the future is going to be for the entire world. From a narrative angle, Days of Future Past sits at the juncture of a lot of really fun playgrounds. Um, Dark alternate cyberpunk, continuity changes. So you you can mess with this timeline, you can mess with this future in ways that you can't mess with 616 if you're a writer. It's also plugged into the Marvel multiverse, which is huge and broken and fascinating. 
And it's also just an iconic storyline. It's the first really big X-Men time travel dark future story. It introduces a lot. And I think a lot of what that also gives you when you uh, introduce a world where people in the present have knowledge of what the potential future could be is they start really considering and agonizing over decisions they make. Everything all of a sudden has this this great weight because, you know, what seems like an inconsequential decision could lead to everyone dying horribly or, you know, some kind of utopia. And with what limited information you have, it's really hard to know. The X-Men Days of Future Past timeline raises the stakes of every action that takes place leading up to it. Everything beforehand. It creates, as Miles said, a sense of just urgency that it's hard to get any other way. So our second question from Shork, also known as Shork Week. What, in your estimation, is truly the darkest X-Men timeline and why? Show your work. I mean, I think we all know it's the timeline where Jeff rolls a one and Troy has to get the pizza. Uh, I think we're referring specifically to X-Men dark timelines. It's fine. <laughs> I'm going to sort of cheat and point out that there are a whole lot of, of universes and timelines where the Earth is just straight up destroyed or the universe is straight up destroyed. There's um, Earth 1745 in which the sun has destroyed the Earth. There's Earth 944 where Reed Richards is the only survivor of Earth after it's consumed by Galactus. There's Earth 952 where the Silver Surfer doesn't deceive Galactus and steer him away from Earth. He devours Earth and the Fantastic Four become his new heralds. Earth uh, 1120, where Thanos destroys the Milky Way, and my personal favorite, Earth 242, which is on fire. Like, it's the the literal name of that universe is Earth on Fire. Uh, You've also got a couple splinter dark timelines that go to to other places. So the one that for me is legitimately the creepiest is Earth 597. We see this in in early Excalibur. That's one where the Nazis won World War II, and what's creepy is that we see alternate Excalibur who are now a Nazi team. So, like, uh, we have, instead of Captain Britain, Hauptmann England, and we have uh, Nightcrawler as pretty much Errol Flynn, like this dashing, you know, Nazi dickbag. Rapist, yeah. That's, like, he's, he's, he's literally basically Errol Flynn. He's a Nazi, he's got swords, he goes around trying to rape people. But what really creeps me out in this version of Earth is we see Kitty Pride. Now, Kitty Pride, the character, is Jewish, and that comes up sometimes, but we see her looking pretty much, I mean, like a Holocaust because she is and as specifically a ghost and she's really really sad and she can't leave Excalibur and it is legitimately heartbreaking yeah it's it's really it's a really really disturbing timeline um and again Excalibur spends a lot of time there there's all there are also sort of one-off ones that you see in passing so for example Earth 744 is basically the universe from Orwell's 1984 So I think that's all the time we uh, have for today, but thank you for listening, guys. And I want to say also, if you're interested in more on Days of Future Past, I'm going to be reviewing it for Wired.com later this week, so you can check it out there. We'll post a link on the blog. Meanwhile, Rachel and Miles explain the X-Men is recorded at the Roseway in Portland, Oregon, and produced by Bobby Roberts, who's also the co-host of the awesome Welcome to That Whole Thing, which you can check out at welcometothatwholething.com. So if you're enjoying our show, um, please take a minute to uh, rate and review us on iTunes or Stitcher, or conceivably both. And also you can check out our online shop at rachelandmiles.com redbubble.com for t-shirts and stickers. Next week, writer Greg Rucka will be joining us in the studio as we explain the space pirate Starjammers, yes. dive into his new Cyclops ongoing series, yes. and just maybe show off Miles's Corsair costume. Oh yes. So, thank you guys for listening, and we will see you in one of an infinite number of alternate futures. If we don't break them first. Break them first.